Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at Wilmington and Beaches Vacation.com. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. I saw all the oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Hey, Sugar fans, we are going to be taking some time off to work on new episodes, and we'll be back this summer with a brand new season of Dear Sugar Radio. That's right. We'll be releasing episodes in seasons going forward, and we have some more exciting developments on the horizon that we can't quite tell you about yet, but we will soon. And now, listen, there's something you can do in the meantime for us, though, because you listeners are the reason we love making this show more than anything, and we want you to actually be a part of planning what shows we do moving ahead. So if you have an idea for an episode, write to us at DearSugarRadio at gmail.com and put show idea in the subject line. We're going to be listening back during this little break to some of our favorite episodes of Dear Sugar Radio. During the month of May, by popular demand, we're going to be listening to our four-part series we did on infidelity. Enjoy and stay tuned for more Dear Sugar Radio. Dear Sugar is supported by... The universe has good news for the lost, lonely, and heartsick. Sugar is here, the both of us, speaking straight into your ears. I'm Cheryl Strayed. I'm Steve Almond. This is Dear Sugar Radio. Oh, dear song, won't you please Share some little sweet days with me Hi, Steve. Hi, Cheryl. I think we are both kind of on pins and needles excited for this episode, part three of the Infidelity Triumvirate or Triptych. Yeah, so welcome, yeah, to part three of this three part episode that we're doing on the subject of infidelity. And as we promised last week, we have a pretty amazing guest today. Do you want to tell our listeners who that is? So, um, you know, some years ago when Aaron and I were, as every monogamous or every couple does, struggling in some way or another, we read this book uh, together, Mating in Captivity, by the writer and therapist and clinician and thinker, Esther Perel. And uh, we were pretty astonished at the level of insight and really the way that it made us think anew about um, how difficult it is to maintain intimacy and deep connection in the context of a monogamous relationship. And of course, Cheryl, the extension of that is that into many relationships, as we know from our you know inbox, our email, infidelity, the temptation or the fact of it plays out in all kinds of different configurations. And Esther Perel, not surprisingly, following up on that, has now turned her research and her work on that very question of what is infidelity, where does it come from, how do we define it, and what does it mean in the lives of those who are either the betrayed or the betrayer. Um, And so I cannot imagine a guest more ideally suited. She's working on her next book, Right. And I think this next book is specifically on the topic of infidelity. And really, she is one of the most complicated and interesting thinkers about our erotic lives. So, Steve, let's listen to our conversation with Esther. Yes. Hello. Hello, Esther Perel. How are you? How are you? I'm good. So I'm Steve Almond, and I'm here in the studio with Cheryl Strayed, and we are so thankful and delighted that you have a few minutes to talk with us. You've done such great work for uh, love and sex in the world. 
I'm trying. <laughs> I love it. So, so this episode, we're doing a series on infidelity. And the first week we dealt with the betrayed and the betrayers. But we really come to you to try to answer a few broader questions uh, since you've studied so much and given so much thought to infidelity. And the first one is really quite basic. Since there's so many forms to which we ascribe the word infidelity, we wondered if you would provide what you think of as a useful definition of what infidelity is. So, look, the definition of infidelity uh, keeps on expanding. Right. Uh, or the definition of boundary crossing. Um, and so we're all asking, you know, is it a love affair? Is it paid sex? Is it a chat room? Is it, uh, you know, keeping your dating apps and your Tinder on once you've already been seeing someone? I mean, where do we draw the line? Is it porn? So for me, to be able to kind of come up with a definition that encompasses all of these elements and I borrow some of that from a woman named Shirley Glass, who wrote early on about infidelity and is no longer with us. Um, and then I kind of added my own twist to it. But the three essential elements is that the constitutive element of an affair is the secrecy. It is the secrecy that leads to the lying, to the deception, to the duplicity. So it is the structure of an affair. Mm. It's not the sexual behavior or the emotional behavior or what people actually are doing. It's the fact that it is not within the contract, implicit or explicit, spoken or unspoken contract and boundaries that they had with their partner. Mm. So that's the essential one. If the same behaviors in an agreed-upon relationship have nothing to do with infidelity. Right. They have to do with sexual freedom. The second element has to do with the fact that there is an emotional involvement to one degree or another. Mm. I clearly say to one degree or another. There can be a very minimal involvement emotionally, and there can be a massive love affair. I do consider even going to prostitutes and seeing a hooker or an escort as having an emotional component, even if it's not an emotion necessarily in the relationship or in the connection. Connection is a strong word. In the contact, in, even if you're paying in order to absolve yourself of any emotional involvement. Right. That's the paradox. Right. Okay? And the third one, which is to me probably even more important than the, the second one, is that there is a sexual alchemy, an aura. That doesn't mean that you look at the sexual act. It means that you look at the sexualization of this interaction. That means that the kiss that you have never given is just as powerful as hours of actual lovemaking. It doesn't matter. You, the one that you're longing for, the one that you're imagining, mm. the fact that you're having lustful lunches without touch, but everything about you is oozing. It's just very erotic. The erotic isn't just what happens between people's legs, but it is actually happening in the sanctuary of their erotic mind. Yes. Wow. And then you have included all the definitions. So it's these three elements intersecting with each other, always in different ways, but always present, that constitutes infidelity. Many of the people who write us for advice they're so muddled, like, should I feel betrayed? Have I betrayed? And I think that this is really clarifying. So thank you. But, you know, it doesn't mean that you are betrayed by it. That's the other thing is that the degree of betrayal for some people, a one night stand, it makes no difference to a seven year love affair right. on the betrayed side. So I don't think that the degree of betrayal is always commensurate with the egregiousness of the behavior. Two separate things. It's how the couple feels about that thing. Or the person. Or the person, right. the individual. One woman's reaction to her husband's porn use may be no different. Or one man whose wife, and I'm very, just this morning, I mean, I get letters at this point, you know, <laughs> I see the world from the underbelly. And 28 years together, and at one night when they are having a wonderful, intimate moment, you know, she shares her whatever adventure she had years ago, years ago. Mm -hmm. And that's the end of the marriage. He's furious, right. He destroyed her. Right. You know, 
does the rest of life not stand the test of time and of resilience and of connection and of intimacy? And, you know, it has not much to do with the couple. It has to do with this man. And why this revelation shattered his entire worldview. And for some people that is obvious and they would say, how would it not? Right. And for other people, this would be like, you know, I'm glad you're telling me. I hope you had a good time. Um, mm-hmm. Tell me more. And uh, I'm glad you stayed with me anyway and that you didn't go off with that person. Or um, I'm happy that you trust me, that you can tell me now what's it been like for you to live with that secret. Or, you know what, I wish you had never told me this is yours. And I don't really want to know more about it. So let's put this aside. Yeah, 10 other responses here. Right. And we too, as you might know, get lots of letters. That's what we're in the business of. And one of the letters that we received uh, was from a woman who engaged in what was just an emotional affair with a little sexting mixed in. And she did it once. And then she came back together with her husband, admitted to it, and they reconciled and all seemed to be well. And then she did it again. And he was utterly ruined by it. And it leads to this question that we've been throwing back and forth for a while, which is, why do people commit infidelities of whatever sort, by whatever definition, the contract that they have together? What are the impulses that people have? And this woman especially, who was saying quite earnestly, I want this life, I want this man, I want to build a life together. It has nothing to do with it, necessarily. Uh Sometimes it does. Sometimes people mind the motives of their infidelities in the disappointments of their relationship. But come on, the power of transgression is the archetypal foundational story of the Bible. Yes. (laughs) Because we transgress, because we want to break our own code, (laughs) sometimes of morality, sometimes of ethics, sometimes of the power structure, sometimes of the institution of marriage, because there is freedom in transgression. And there is power in transgression. And to look at infidelity from the point of view of sex is a complete narrowing of the phenomenon. There is a reason this commandment is repeated twice in the Bible. Once for doing it and once just for thinking about about it. it, Because our ancestors understood that there is more than just coveting thy neighbor's wife. At stake is the institution of marriage that needed to be protected. Mm -hmm. It had nothing to do with sex. It had to do with preserving power structures. And an institution like marriage is a power structure. And we have always created structures and broken structures. We have made rules and bifurcated rules. It is essential to the human spirit. But for this woman in particular, who has one set of values or feelings that says, I want desperately to be in this marriage, I want to live with this man for the rest of my life and have our family. And to be monogamous And to be monogamous with him. Yes, and I'm also playing around. Yes. So, look, I believe that the vast majority of people who are unfaithful are monogamous in their beliefs. The ones who are not monogamous in their beliefs either live in poly relationships or consensual non-monogamous relationships, or they have divorced. Right. If it's very, very bad, then people don't stay married these days in the West. Mm -hmm. Right. So if they married and they want their family, but they want something else. They want something else that they don't have in their life or that isn't part of the life that they created for themselves or simply that isn't who they are in the context of their family. The vast majority of unfaithful people are experiencing a conflict between their values and their behavior. Okay, They don't necessarily feel great about what they're doing, meaning differently. They feel fantastic about what they're doing in terms of what it's doing for themselves. And at the same time, they can feel deeply guilty and ashamed about what it represents about who they are and how it would be hurting the people that they love equally. And it is that mess that is the mess of infidelity. It's not an either or. This idea that one would ask, how can you say you love your husband and you want to stay married and also have an affair? Because we are not the same woman in that affair or the same man because, you know, sexual revolutions don't take place at home because for most of us, freedom wasn't something that we experienced in our family, but usually outside of our family mm-hmm. because there is something about going to a place where you are not the wife, the mother and the caretaker. 
or the breadwinner, and all of these meanings for what that happened outside the boundaries, outside of those lines, which we at the same time want to preserve. Right. Obviously, infidelity causes people a lot of suffering and pain and turmoil. Is there a way that we can, I mean, what are you trying to do in your work in terms of enlightening people who strive for monogamy, even though they don't necessarily maintain it, succeed at it? So uh, the first thing is that for most couples who come to me, you know, especially in the aftermath of the revelation of an affair, when they are gutted, when the carpet has been pulled from under them. And mm-hmm. both people, both people are in a state of crisis. Both people fear the loss of the predictable future. Both people have a crisis of identity. It's really a crisis of two with completely different meanings. Is that often they start to have conversations for the first time about mm-hmm. love, sex, monogamy, and marriage. Most couples don't negotiate or don't even converse about any of these things, you know, until the crisis of the affair has actually forced them to. So, you know, sexual addiction becomes the door to talk about sex and sexual fantasies and sexual frustrations and sexual preferences and sexual behaviors and sexual fetishes. And why do we need to go through the pathology or through the crisis to talk about the stuff that should be there from the start. But most straight couples negotiate monogamy with one simple line. I catch you, you're dead. Right. Mm -hmm. Are there circumstances that you could envision, Esther, in which you would recommend, because many of the people who are writing to us have these affairs as secrets. They haven't shared them with their partner yet. Are there any circumstances where you could imagine that it is a good idea to keep quiet about it? Uh, let's say a woman comes to you or just a partner person comes to you and says, I feel great gratification from this relationship outside the partnership and uh, it makes me feel good. It's what allows me to function happily and enjoy my marriage and keep it together without growing frustrated and angry. And I know that if I say word one to my partner, our marriage will be over. Mm-hmm. In that instance, do you feel qualms about saying to that person, well, then don't say anything? So I rarely have to pronounce myself like this because I really think that it's people who have to live with the choices and the consequences of their choices. It's not me. So I will not interfere there. I will help people to foster their own Mm self-determination. And I like the way you formulate the question, which is, are there cases? Are there people? I think this is really very much a case-by-case rather than a blanket rule. Um, You know, sometimes the person may say, I know my partner. I know what this would do. There is no point to it. And I understand it. And sometimes I think you are on a real descent and you are in a self-destructive, you know, uh, launch and nothing is going to stop you until your partner finds out Certainly not me. I don't have the power to do a squat on this one. (laughs) But the terror of losing your partner is the only thing that's actually going to put a stop to this. And sometimes I think, you know, find out already. Sometimes I think, let this affair die a natural death. Most affairs will die a natural death, you know, and most grandparents were discovered with drawers filled with letters. It's just that we found out after they died. Today, (laughs) we have, you know, I opened the phone to look at the weather and I find, you know, the message of of someone that has initials and then I recognize the initials and then I understand that the initials is, you know, (laughs) is a lover. So, we we have never had a harder time to keep a secret. We've yeah. never had it easier to cheat as we have today, and we've never had it harder to keep a secret as we have today. But the meaning of secrecy, your question cannot be taken out of a cultural conversation. The meaning of secrecy is very different when the model of love and intimacy is one of transparency. So to understand the politics of secrecy and revelation, you have to understand the larger culture in which the couple lives and the culture of the couple itself around what is defined intimately, what is defined as privacy, you know, where did the couple draw the lines around togetherness and separateness. And that's 
what informs you. You always ask, what would happen if you tell? What would happen if you don't tell? And sometimes the partner doesn't want to know. Right. I have heard so many people in my office say, I wish you'd never told me. Yeah. I wish you'd never told me. Right. Yeah. And you don't know. So sometimes when a person asks a question, you even slow it down because you can never take it back. And you just say, do you want to hear the answer to your question? Or do you want your partner to know that you have the question? Mm. Mm. That's, a great, that's a great way to put it. As you noted, you know, we do tend to, at least in this culture, aspire to a, a kind of a, a deeper intimacy, a, a more companionable relationships. And I'm wondering what special challenges are brought about by what I think many see as sort of an advancement in intimacy. What challenges are brought about when it comes to sex and monogamy and fidelity and infidelity? I think that we, at this point, are living one of the greatest experiments of the humankind <laughs> to try to create what has forever throughout history been considered a contradiction in terms called a passionate marriage. <laughs> Passion has always existed, but it took place somewhere else. And we want Everything that we wanted from traditional marriage, companionship and family life and children and economic support, and we want a best friend and we want a passionate lover and we want a trusted confidant and we want an intellectual equal and we are asking so many things from one person. Basically, I've often said that line, that we are asking one person to give us what once an entire village used to provide. Hmm. And the couples are crumbling under the weights of so much expectations. That's the biggest challenge. And we don't have sex because it's a woman's marital duty, in some circles at least. Right. We have sex because we feel like it. Sex that is rooted in desire, connection, and pleasure. Are you saying this is impossible, Esther, or are you I saying... I say that very few people do it, yes. There are very, very few people who achieve this marital bliss, absolutely. And I think that a lot more people are miserable from it because that is the Kool-Aid that they drank and that they think that they are deficient if they have not been able to accomplish this nirvana. Now, that might sound to our listeners and first blush like a very pessimistic statement, but I actually think it will be very comforting. Oh, I mean, I'm married 30 years. That's peculiar. Right. This is not a statement to the disillusionment of marriage. Not I at think all. that this is a statement to the appeal of realism and of understanding that the marriage isn't meant to make you happy. The marriage is there so that it gives you a life in which you can find happiness. Yeah, I think many people in long-term monogamous relationships and many of our letter writers certainly are absolutely crushed by the expectation that a partner is going to provide everything that you're talking about and uncertain as to why they feel dissatisfied when they have four out of the ten boxes checked. But I, I wonder about this. I, I was talking with a friend of mine, and she said that what she does sometimes is she goes out, and she'll go out dancing or to a bar, and she's happily married, but that she wants to kind of go out into the world and gather a certain kind of sexual energy and flirtation and be awakened in that way, and that's okay with her husband. Do you recommend to your clients and just in general that one way that we can help try to deal with this impossible set of expectations is for couples to talk more explicitly about what their contract is and what might be allowed that can help them find passion and a sense of sort of rejuvenation outside of the marriage in ways that are acceptable? Yes. Yes, but I would say it's a continuum. Look, the question always is, how do I turn myself on? Not how do you turn me on? How do I awaken my desire? How do I connect to my own erotic self, my sense of aliveness, of vibrancy, of vitality, in that sense, erotic self? And for women, phylogenea, the love of the woman, is absolutely essential. If she is not feeling sexual with herself, she will not respond to any sexual advances that will come from any partner, male or female. That's absolutely clear. You know, in straight couples, you will often find a man who will say, nothing turns me on more than to see my partner turned on. Right. Mm -hmm. You rarely hear a woman say that. That is not <laughs> what turns her on. What turns her on is to be the turn on. 
That's right. <laughs> okay? So when this woman goes dancing, what she's experiencing is a reconnection with her own erotic self. And in her case, it's through the gaze of other men. In the case of another woman, that may not have much to do with the man as much as simply to be on the floor dancing with music and feeling free and not having to take care of anybody and feel responsible for anybody else's well-being. For another person, it's about going on a hike for four days by herself and just reconnecting with nature and with strength and with endurance and with beauty and all of that. Instead of being specific about the dance floor and the other men and the lamps and the darkness and the music, the framework has to be how do people stay connected with their own sense of aliveness, with their own erotic pulse. For somebody else, it's about playing music. So the manifestation of it is less important. Now, of course, some people have an easier time with their partner playing the piano than with their partner going to a club to dance. That depends on the couple. That depends on how couples negotiate not just boundaries, but also the the erotic space of the other. Some couples understand very well that within you there is a whole sexual life that isn't just the one that you share with me. That is one element of your sexual life or your sexuality. The rest may be in your mind, in your memories, in your reading of romance, in the 35 million women who read Fifty Shades. <laughs> you know, um, Is there a difference between the woman who is spending her evenings reading the three volumes of Fifty Shades and the woman who goes on the dance floor to reconnect with her sense of playfulness and uh, even naughtiness or flirtatiousness? Is there? And that is a question that I don't answer for people, but it's a question that I help people answer for themselves. Is it too personal to ask, since you seem to recognize and have thought and I think done a lot of study around the issue of how it is we came to this place historically and culturally where we put so much of an expectation on an institution that was previously economic and about duty and family and suddenly it's supposed to be passionate, the idea of this passionate marriage. Can you talk a little bit about in your own life what you've done or avoided doing to try to deal with that quandary and feel passionate within the context of your marriage? Or is that too personal? I can give you one glimpse. I think that um, as a teenager growing up in Europe, I certainly um, embraced the romantic ideal. I mean, who doesn't? it's not just the fairy tale stories that you read as a five-year-old. It's the movies you watch. It's the novels you read. The romantic ideal is powerful, powerful. And I recommend it to myself on some level, and I recommend to my patients that before you leave your partner, sometimes you may want to divorce your belief system. Mm. <laughs> you know, you, because it, sometimes I think that the divorced people are the true romantics. One thinks of them as the disillusioned and the ones, but in fact, they are the true romantics. They believe in the model. They just think they chose the wrong person and next time I'll do better. So sometimes I think that for me, I, I chose to divorce my belief system rather than my husband. Right. You know, that there's going to be this one person and you will never feel alone again and you will never feel anxious again and you will never feel abandoned again. You will you will never have a negative experience again because there is someone right there next to you right. who is going to make you feel like you are the most important person all along. So that is to me the beginning is to to understand that a good relationship is a village in which People share parts of themselves with various people, and that doesn't mean sexual parts. That just means that there are numerous people that reflect back on you, your sense of self-worth, your value, how much you mean to them in their life, you know, that you don't just exist for one person and just not one person that is meant to make you feel like you matter. There's a community that makes you feel that you matter. And so if you can't talk with your husband about certain things, Talk with your girlfriends. Talk with your male friends. That's the biggest piece: is to give up the model that one person will be there for everything. Right. You have to. You have to surrender your fantasy about that romantic ideal. And then I will say that once you give up this ideal, then the next part is 
Now you begin to really accept the person you're with. And the person you're with is not going to give you everything. And the person you're with is going to leave you frustrated on certain things. And more importantly than any other one, the person you're with isn't always going to know what you want and what you feel without you even having to say it. (laughs) Because they're so close to you that they're inside of you and you and them are one. Right. And the person you're with might have sexual desire for somebody else now and then and probably will. Inevitably. Yes, and you too. Yeah. And you too. <laughs> and acknowledged too. or not acknowledged, acted on or not acted on, openly or secretly. There's all these categories. You know, one question that comes up over and over again in the letters we see is if you have been found out, your infidelity has been found out and it's not acceptable to the partner. And we just, uh, you know, read a letter from a woman who's utterly bereft. And the question a lot of these letter writers are asking is, how can I repair the marriage? How can I get the marriage back after this betrayal? What should I do? I'm sure you face this question all the time. It might not even be the right question, but what do you say to somebody who says, I am desperate to heal this marriage? Or how can I trust again this marriage that might be broken? From the because, other side, right. right. You know, it's very interesting. I just was supervising this whole day. So I've been teaching now for six hours today, pretty much only on cases like this. Now, when a person says, I want to mend, I want to heal, I want to trust again, it is a lot of things that one says. It's a a whole book, this, that I'm writing on that. And it starts with, tell me what happened. What kind of betrayal has it been for you? Where did it touch you? Where exactly? What is it about this betrayal? Today, we had a case where the man has been cheating multiple times. But it's only because the housekeeper found him in the bed with the other woman that the whole crisis was unleashed. The kids know of everything. This is 30-something years together. Why now? Why this one? Because the housekeeper found it? Because there is a public humiliation about it? And what is it that made this one worse than all the others? That's in the case of repeated things, right? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, what is it that you need? Do you need acknowledgement? You need first and foremost to know that the other person feels bad for having hurt you, that they really experience deep remorse and regret and guilt for having hurt you. Sometimes the person feels so entitled to have their affair. They feel that they deserved it. They feel that it was finally justice come true, that they actually don't feel guilty. They don't. They've been rejected for 15 years sexually and they feel entitled to it. Mm-hmm. This is a complicated mess. So... Then you say, you know, your partner doesn't seem to feel so bad about it, you know. And then you instantly have to be careful that the person not say, oh, but then you're blaming the victim. And then you say, no, you may be the victim of the affair, but you may not be the victim of your marriage. What is it that you feel responsible to in the relationship? You want to know that it will never happen again? I don't think you should ask for it like that because you're setting yourself up, maybe. Is that a fair question in the context of what you know between the two of you to just make the person promise they never will do it again or see the other person again or contact them again? You know, is that going to give you a sense of peace and trust? Or is peace coming when you know that the relationship is good and strong and that both people want to be there? And that you know it's not going to happen because when I'm going to want to do it, your image is going to appear in front of my eyes and I'm going to say, I'm not going to do it. It's not worth it. I would love to, but it's too hurtful. We did so much to come through this. I'm not going to act on this. (laughs) And that then becomes what stops it, is the, the renewed connection, the renewed sense of devotion, of loyalty that is in the couple. So you want to know where is the betrayal? What is it, the piece where you feel like you've been so profoundly disrespected, diminished, dismissed, pushed aside in the mind of the other? Yeah, In, in a love relationship, we hold the other person in our mind, in our heart, inside of us. We hold them. We make space for them. How was it that you could kind of evict me like that yeah. from your inner being? You know, and... I say so many things about what is the hurt, about where is the pain, about is there humiliation, about is there vengeance, is there jealousy, is there envy? Envy, 
you know, we never talk about how many people wanted to do it too, but they didn't give themselves the permission to. They had an ethics code. They had their own reasons why they didn't do it. And so it's like, I want that too. Why did you allow yourself? And I did not. I would never have, you see, but there is a kind of a strange envy about it. Really, which has a few things I would say. There isn't one kind of infidelity. There isn't one kind of response to infidelity. And none of my attempts to try to understand it and to catalog it ever comes close to to condoning it. It's not because one is not condemning it that one is condoning it. Right. And it's not understanding doesn't mean justifying. But I am committed to understanding because if you ask an audience, like I did this weekend, of 600 people, how many of you have been affected by infidelity? Almost 85% of the room will raise their hand. Sure. Yeah, right. So this experience affects us so deeply as a child, as a friend, as a sibling, as the lover in the triangle, you name it, that to think that you can just say, I say this, (laughs) I say this to these people in that situation. Right. Right. And I say something very different in a completely different story. That's why it's such a difficult subject to to wrap your head around, because there isn't one set of prescriptions that fits all. And one of the most important things about this is that what it meant for him and what it did to her are so completely different. It's one of the most unique experiences where two people have utterly differentiated experiences of what just happened. Of the same event. No, really. Of the same event that will not reconcile. Esther, you have done such wonderful, insightful work on this subject. And I just want to thank you for being on Dear Sugar Radio. I I just feel personally enlightened by it. And I know our listeners are going to as well. Yeah. Thank you so much, Esther. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Oh, oh my, my god. god. Oh my god. <laughs> How do oh I turn? God. Wait a second now. No, Hold no, 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 me, no, no me. No, I, no, I love her it's more. Like, it's like I, when she said, How do I turn myself on? The question is, How do I turn myself on? And I just wrote down, Talk to Esther Perel. She's amazing. Yeah. I think that, that Esther Perel is the voice we need right now on this subject. All of these people whose letters we've answered, and we've got one more coming up mm-hmm. on, on this show today. You know, I hope that those letter writers and, and the listeners who identify with them take some heart in just knowing, like, this is hard. Yeah. You know, when we began talking about infidelity, I began with this story you know, of Brian's having a one-night stand with another woman. Right. And, you know, I think that for me early on, when I say I'm grateful that that thing happened early mm-hmm. on, even mm-hmm. though it was painful... You know, Esther articulated what I meant by that, which is it forced me to let fall the notion that my relationship with him was going to fit into some sort of cultural ideal of this is what it means to love someone. There's nothing like the violation of that romantic ideal to disabuse you of your kind of impossible idealized version of what love is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. It, It might be a good thing to let some of the air out of that fantasy before you enter into the long term. Well, we're just about to hear our last letter. As much as we could continue to talk about Esther Perel, uh, I want to read you one more letter that's, uh, that's our last letter and certainly qualifies as a betrayer. If I fall short If I don't make the grade Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser. Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Dear Sugars, 
I am a married 53-year-old man with two high school-aged children. My wife and I provide a nice home, good schools, and opportunities for our kids to grow and explore. However, our marriage isn't what I want it to be. I am about deep conversations, exploring the arts and nature, and finding spirituality through life, deep connection, and sex. My wife's world is that of Tiger Mom and her professional career. She makes time for friends, school activities, and women's outings, with space for bubble baths and magazines to relax. She leaves little of herself for me. Activities I would choose to do with my wife I end up doing alone. She has sex with me for 15 minutes once a week because she knows it's necessary. Our sex is perfunctory, vanilla, time-limited, and flat because she is unengaged. I've learned how easy it is to ask for sex from women and actually get it. As a man who travels for work, I've been able to find multiple lovers and numerous sexual liaisons over the years. I am not proud, but this life has allowed me to maintain a comfortable and stable home for my kids while exploring my sexual being. Keeping my soul alive in this way has allowed me to maintain some semblance of masculine energy where it might otherwise have dwindled away, leaving me an emasculated shell. With all my heart, I wish to turn this around and have a happy, passionate, engaged, monogamous marriage. The obvious suggestion is to talk to my wife, but she avoids all discussions about the relationship. She simply tunes me out, finds things to blame me for to distract the conversation, or leaves the room. At 53, I am fit and have great sexual energy, though I am sensing my stamina is not what it was decades past, and I fear that the kind of connection I seek will become harder as years pass. Even if middle ground could be achieved, I have a secret legacy of unfaithfulness to contend with, and even if that could be comfortably buried, I have tasted great connection and feel the need to have experiences with greater intensity and pleasure than I have ever dared pursue. At the same time, I'm not ready to give up. I know my wife. I love her. I feel indebted to her for being devoted to the kids and do not wish to hurt her. What should I do? Signed, Married Man. It's a sad letter. You know, his infidelity, his sexual infidelity, it's really the least of my concerns. When Hmm. when I read this letter, I am really worried about the fact that He's married to this person who he feels he has very little emotional connection to. They don't share common interests. They don't take time for each other. I mean, he does right. seem to kind of put the blame on her. She doesn't take time for me. We don't know if, if that's fair. You know, right. maybe he should be joining his wife in some of the things she loves. Right. But having said that, I mean, I do, I, I feel like the those sexual infidelities are sort of a, a side note. You know, of course he's been unfaithful. Of course he's gone around and, and found women to have sex with because he's so lonely in his marriage. Right. The greatest betrayal here is that they're holding up this sort of intimacy without being intimate. They have a marriage and they aren't best friends. So many of the letters we get from people where the problem is infidelity, it's they're saying things like, I love my spouse. We are best friends. We have lots of great things together, but there's this one thing. We're right. not having sex, or I'm attracted to somebody else, or I've lost interest in, in sex. What we're hearing from this man is, I've lost interest in my wife, and my wife has lost interest in me. So right. when we get to the point in the letter that really surprised me, the most surprising line was when he said, I'm not ready to give up, and I love my wife. Because... He, he really has said nothing to us in the letter up until that point that convinces us of that. And so that's actually kind of interesting and beautiful. There is something still left there that he is interested in and trying to save. In a certain way, we could say, well, this was what marriage looked like for millennia. Right. It was uh, an agreement that there would be a domestic partnership. But I guess, having listened to Esther Perel, there's another side of it says, well, he esteems his wife for companionship, for maintaining the household, for her devotion to the kids, and just recognizes that she's not open for business when it comes to the passionate desire and engagement and expression that he also values. And I mean, the secrecy part of it and the sneaking off and not being honest with her is what really is hard to stomach. But the actual desires themselves well, yeah, that's the natural order of things. And he's telling a very exaggerated story, but it's one that's recognizable both to men and women. 
Some part of him is saying, I don't want to hurt my wife, and I know that if I say something to her, that's going to hurt her and maybe blow up the stability of the marriage. And I know also that when I try to talk to her, she doesn't want to hear it or leaves the room. Now, we both know that might be a rationalization. He yeah. might be We, we do hear from people sometimes where they say, oh, my partner refuses to talk to me about this or that. Right. And wow, I mean, what a difficult thing. I really have sympathy for that. But I also think... Well, here's the thing. There is a point where you do say, well, guess what? You are going to talk to me about this or right. I'm leaving you. Right. Now, I am an advocate of honesty and openness. And I think deceit is a really dangerous seed to plant and let grow in your relationships with anyone. But I do wonder, really, I would like to ask married man to think about this. Yeah. You know, because there really are two things going on. Uh, one is, okay, he's been unfaithful and should he fess up? And two is he wants to be close to his wife again. Right. He wants to feel connected to her. So there are essentially two conversations he can have. And what I wonder is, you know, maybe he should keep these sexual affairs to himself. At least for now. For the time being. You know, I mean, sure, if he wants to walk into the middle of his marriage and, you know, ignite that bomb, I cheated on you, I've been cheating on you for years, everywhere I travel I have a lover, that will surely bring about a fire and something will happen. You know, that fire will destroy something or it will ignite something. You know, the emotional connection that he wants is with his wife. It's amazing to me that he hasn't fallen in love with one of his other lovers. I mean, he has such a lonely marriage. He's right to fall in love with somebody else. And so maybe the bomb that's going to be a more meaningful one to plant will be the one in which he says, you and I need to work on our marriage and we need to be closer and we need to find the connection we lost or I want out. And maybe he does it alone with her in a room or maybe they go to a counselor together. It sounds like it would help to go to a counselor yes. together because she's shut down. Yeah. Um, but, you know, maybe that infidelity confession comes later, you know, d- deeper into that conversation. Because right. the infidelity, as we said with Esther, it's like it, it can cause all of this pain. And when really all this was was like a sexual release for this man. Right. He still loves his wife. Right. And so maybe that is really... You know, a side note that comes out if they do regain that intimacy, that they say, listen, you know, there's a deeper conversation we need to have about sex and I need to come clean. My impulse is to put their primary bond, that is the emotional bond, at the center of their confrontation. Or discussion. Well, the other thing we should say is we are well aware from all letter writers, but particularly this letter, that we're getting one side of the story. And I would question when he writes, our sex is perfunctory, vanilla, time limited, and flat because she is unengaged. Well, she's unengaged for a whole set of reasons. And it's partly because her desire for herself and for you has not been activated. And that's partly probably your responsibility. So I guess we have a very particular portrayal of the wife here, married man. And the question is, is this always how it was? And if you go back some years, was there a different way that your marriage functioned where you felt, even though the desire was in captivity, you felt that it was something far more than just once a week perfunctory, got to do it. It's marital duty. Um, And if that's the case, do you believe that it is possible to get that back and in an honest relationship with your wife? But that's going to take some work on your part as well. It's not just your wife like waking up and not being a tiger mom and suddenly inviting you into her bubble bath. When two people become this disconnected, they are both responsible for that. And I'm sort of convinced that married man, you need to be thinking about the ways in which you are not inviting your wife to take part in and help you experience your own desire and, by the way, give a shit about hers. Turn it around. What do you do for her? Yeah. I mean, their sex might be vanilla and perfunctory, but they've been together all of these years and they're having sex once a week. That's right. I <laughs> was just going to say, like, once a week? Okay, 15 minutes? <laughs> and, right. I mean, in, 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 in an, a marriage that is this sort of emotionally cold and dead, they don't share these interests, they don't... The, the fact that they are still at least coming together once a week, right? you know, that is something. It right. really is. And so, you know, I would say when you do 
confront your wife, married man, or when you do demand that she has this necessary conversation with you. Oh, gosh. Because please do that. You are dying inside, you know? And I think that that's no way to live. That's why you wrote to us. You're sad. And you do deserve a richer life with a partner who gives you more. And I think that so much of that has to do with not just going forward with the complaints you have about your dissatisfaction, but also being mindful of what it is that she's given you. I see that in your letter. I see that you say she's a great mother. She's made a great home. And that sex life that you're not so satisfied with, at least she's maintained it with you, mm-hmm. you know, and, and value that uh, before you criticize her in yeah. that regard. This is one of those letters where, you know, Esther was talking about feeling entitled to. You can see him building the case for feeling entitled to these affairs. But clearly you want more than that. And the question is, do you want more than that within this marriage? And then you you have to do some work. Even if you don't bring it up first thing out of the gate in a larger discussion about the things you need and want, or very much want in the marriage, at a certain point, that legacy of unfaithfulness is probably going to have to be excavated if you really do reach a point where you agree that you want to go forward together in a new way. You know, I don't think I agree with you, Steve. Hmm. And I don't know that I'm disagreeing specifically in married man's case, but I will say that I was nodding my head when Esther was saying to us that not everyone wants to know everything their partner did. You know, maybe for some people it's enough if your partner comes to you and says, listen, things aren't going well in our marriage. I've made mistakes. I don't think you've been a good partner to me. How do we go forward together? I loved that Esther said, do you want to know the answer to that question or do you want your partner to know that you have the question? I know this came up for me one time when I was pondering a letter when I was writing the Dear Sugar column from somebody whose husband was in Iraq serving in the military. Mm-hmm. And her question was, you know, what if my husband has had a few sexual encounters over there? Do I want to know? Is it better for our relationship and our marriage if he comes home and says, yeah, I had sex with three prostitutes? Or is it better if we just say, welcome home and begin again? Again, I don't know the answer to that question. I think that there's a different answer for every couple. But I think that intimacy is about asking each other that question. I hope you can work on that, married man, because, of course, that's why your heart hurts, because you've lost that. Absolutely. Good Good luck. Don't give up on me Please don't give up on me What? A subject, really. Oh my God. I am so wrung out that I am going to go never have an affair. Yeah, me too. So, you know, we talked about a lot of letters, but I think what was so instructive about Esther Perel's discussion of infidelity was just the feeling that This is a case-by-case, extraordinarily complicated, and maybe even inevitable part of the human arrangement. And rather than being prescriptive, we should just say, wow, 85% of our listeners, and probably more than 85% of our listeners, have been profoundly affected by this. And I think Esther Perel gave us unbelievable tools in thinking in a much larger, more expansive, less judgmental and self-punitive way about infidelity, about Mm. these desires when they go wild. I'll be thinking about her words for a long time. Absolutely. And, And all of those letters that you've sent us on this subject too, not just the ones we read to you over the course of these last episodes, but so many. It's a timeless topic and we're going to keep exploring it on this show. Mm hmm. All right, we need to tell you a few things about this here podcast that you've been listening to. Dear Sugar Radio is produced by WBUR. We are produced and edited by the lovely Lisa Tobin. Please send us your letters. We cannot get enough of them to Dear Sugar Radio at gmail.com. Thank you. But wait.